ITE Soccer Women's World Cup podcast, sponsored by Cadbury. From grassroots to national level, a supporter and a half of women's football in Ireland. So Spain are the world champions after as convincing a 1-0 win as you might see over England on Sunday morning in Sydney. And as it's become a bit of a tradition, I think World Cup finals are going to be remembered as much for what happened during the uh, celebrations and the um, kind of the uh, the medal giving as they are for what happened on the pitch. Not quite, but after the Men's World Cup final in Qatar, we had um, the strange shawl that they insisted Messi wear. And then you had Emi Martinez doing what he did with his Golden Glove trophy. Uh, so yesterday set forward uh, Luis Rubiales the Spanish Football Federation president who decided it was a good idea to kiss Jenny Hermoso on the lips as she went up to um, to celebrate. An odd one. And then we had the um, Spanish FA putting out their um, their tweet saying uh, Vilda in afterwards, which obviously, you know, he is a World Cup winning manager, but that's a complicated situation as we discussed on Sunday or on Friday before the World Cup. I'm joined by Anthony Pine and by Megan Campbell, as I was on Friday. And we all predicted England wins, so uh, we're here now to explain why why we were so wrong. Megan, it was it was an entertaining final, wasn't it? Yeah, it definitely was. I think it's um, it was two top teams, top nations playing the great stars of football, um, and ultimately one team had to come out on top, but not who we predicted. Yeah, but um, just an all round great game. I think for the neutral, great spectacle for women's football in general, and a, a great final overall. Yeah, it was a great spectacle, Anthony. But um, it's nothing new. Like it's uh, it could it could have been men's football as easy as women's football. But um, after a great spectacle, you have a football administrator making a spectacle of themselves. It, it seemed a little bit unnecessary what the president of the Spanish FA did yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, unnecessary to say the least. Um, and you know, tone deaf as well in terms of the actual tweet that came out from the official account Vildin, which is obviously um a reference to the controversy that's uh, swarmed around him over the last year, and the fact that there was fifteen players almost a year ago who signed a letter saying they didn't want to play in the current setup. Uh, obviously, some of those players came back. Um. Some sort of came back uh, willingly, and in terms of fully backing them, but others were there. Uh, you wouldn't say completely happy, but sort of there was some sort of brokering to get them back. And then others missed out completely. And you'd have to feel for those players who missed out because there's there's some of those Spanish players should have been on the pitch yesterday. And you're talking about key players as well. And uh, it was just completely tone deaf to sort of celebrate this as some sort of indication. We, I mean, this is a complicated thing. And he is the coach. He is the manager. And you'd have to say that he made calls that were... Um, took calls to make at times and, and looked risky, you know, changing the goalkeeper uh, in the way he used Paluera, uh, and off the bench and then eventually started yesterday. And, you know, ultimately he has won a World Cup, but like this is a, this is a difficult, uh, messy uh, and complicated scenario. And certainly they, they could have had some better decorum in consideration of that and in terms of the president's behaviour. I mean, I, I think some of the Spanish media framed it as a sort of... Um, compared it to 2010 when Iker Casillas uh, kissed the journalist Sarah Carbonero, if you remember, mm-hmm. uh, during a post-match interview. But they were in a relationship, and, and that was open, public knowledge. It was a little bit, you know, 
embarrassing for her maybe or cringing at the time but this is very different i mean this this is we're talking about boundaries and, and what's appropriate and all that type of stuff so uh it, it was um strange and, and in keeping with a really a really odd situation i've never seen a team who looks so dysfunctional off the pitch um have such success at the top end of the game like that I've, I've never seen that i can't think of any other comparison really i mean we've seen teams go into competitions in disarray but usually they come apart at the seams once they get into a tournament scenario because it's such a high pressure environment uh not spain <laughs> actually and again i guess that's testament to just how talented that that group is yeah you could see it after the game megan that there was there was two spanish huddles celebrating there was the there was uh, Vilda and his backroom team and then the players and they were 40 or 50 yards apart for a couple of photographs I saw. So there's two takes on this that Vilda either, you know, he shows incredible strength and leadership to manage to, you know, kind of coach a group of players who dislike him intensely, it seems, and don't have much respect for him. Or the other hand of it is that he's kind of a stuffed suit on the sideline and the players masterminded this themselves. So it probably depends on which side of the argument you come down to on, as to which narrative you adopt. Yeah, I think uh, maybe more will come out now in, in post-World Cup. I think a lot of it was maybe, you know, not swept under the rug, but kept to one side because obviously the focus was on the World Cup and, and trying to do as well as they could within the tournament. But now that that tournament's over and they have been successful and as much as they have been, um, I think it's even more important to now focus back in on the other aspects of, of things that were going on in the background. And not, not everyone knows, no one by the players and the staff and Vilda and the obviously the the staff higher up within the Spain Federation know exactly what has been going on and uh hopefully the the light the, the light is shined on that and and um the truth comes out uh ultimately but I think the players need a lot of credit for what they've gone through I think as a, as a whole I think mentally more so than physically obviously you're going to be it's physically through a through a long tournament to so then have to like perform at the best um obviously in the group stage they had that big loss to Japan but game on game they were they were getting better and, and their togetherness and stuff within within the tournament show through and obviously then mentally the side of it where you've got the background the background aspect that you've got to try and stay in control of and put to one side while you're also playing and then you've got players and teammates who are missing out um on such such an important occasion for for Spanish football and for the women's game in general within that country so I think it's difficult if you're a player who was there and obviously you're celebrating and it's brilliant, but, but you know, in the background, there's a lot of stuff going on. And then if you're not there as a player, you think, well, I've missed out, but also I've got, I'm not gone there for my reasons and I stand by my reasons. So I think, and then obviously you've got Vilda's side of things where I've not done wrong. I'm not, I'm just a strict coach, da, da, da. And I think there's, there's a lot of stories and a lot of, opinions coming around from the from the, the federation and, and things and the team as a whole but ultimately they need to come out down to the decision now of do does Vilda stay or does Vilda go and it, I think a, a proper investigation needs to go into the background of it because you need to trust in what the players are saying as well ultimately because they're seeing it they're listening to it constantly and they don't just make things up like that they're serious issues and serious statements to be making about a coach to, to be made up um so i think ultimately the federation definitely need to you know look deeper into it and and for everyone's sake you know sort it out because you can see how good of a spanish team it can be with all this going on imagine how good it can be if you've got all those players back and without all this in the background like spain mm. can become that dominant force and obviously euros in two years time in switzerland like who knows how far they can go yeah 
And they did have an investigation, I suppose, and they, they backed him to the hilt and 15 players walked out, walked away and, you know, the majority of them came back, but not all of them. And now, as we say, in, in the immediate aftermath of their most glorious moment ever, they feel the need to put out quite a pointed tweet, really, the Vilde in one, you know, with him kissing the trophy. It's, it shows there's absolutely winning a World Cup has been a vindication to Vilde rather than any kind of uh, vindication to the players, it would seem. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, look, the thing is that when something like that happens as a federation, if you have like fifteen players, fifteen players who who sent that letter, and some of them came back and some of them didn't, um, no matter what happens at the tournament, that is a serious issue. Like that's a serious flaw in the system. This isn't one or two or three players. This is fifteen who collectively felt that uh, so unhappy that they they felt compelled to write this letter so this just doesn't make all that disappear i mean as megan correctly says we're not privy to what's going on in the dress room or, or, or you know i think uh, emma Byrne alluded to this in, in her um punditry on on rt on the final yesterday like the actual letter and allegations themselves they probably uh lacked specificities um you know it it, it wasn't quite it left it all open to interpretation in some ways, and and I it left. That's why we've probably seen the federation back the manager because they interpret as well. Some of them just don't like him, and we're going to back him. So, um, as Megan says correctly, there they need to do a really full thorough investigation into here uh, and see exactly break this down, uh, transparency, and move on from there because this is a they are such a good side, and you know the. the the national team success, this is coming off the back of a decade of almost unbroken underage success at various levels, under 17, under 19. Um, so the talent pool is unbelievable. And that happens not because of one coach or two coaches. That is a culture within the entire country. You're talking maybe a hundred, a couple of hundred coaches who've, who've been a part of this, like a, a network and a web that are creating these players, like churning out this, this incredible few generation of players. So there's the potential of Spain to be something really special and to build a real dynasty here. But they absolutely, they, they have to get their house in order here because we really shouldn't be sitting here 24 hours after them playing England. In my opinion, they outplayed England yesterday. I thought they were absolutely outstanding. We, we shouldn't be talking about anything other than that, having outplayed such a good side as England are in a World Cup final, you know, in front of, uh, what was it, 76,000 people in Sydney, a fantastic occasion. Uh, so there's a, a pressing need for them to, 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 to get to the bottom of this and, and to offer transparency around it so we can all move on. Mm. What, of, what of England then, Megan? Because I, I think expectations were probably dampened somewhat pre-tournament just by the, the number of injuries to, you know, the worst players possibly they could have injured if you go by their Euros campaign. Um, so Serena Wiegmann, you, would you say that they overachieved in reaching the final or they're obviously disappointed they didn't win a final, but I don't think anyone's going to look back on England's World Cup campaign and say that in any way they failed or they didn't hit the heights that was expected of them. I think reaching a final, given kind of the, the injury profile they had and kind of the, the couple of hiccups and they had during the tournament or the injuries and suspensions, it seemed good, but then it seemed like a very fine performance, but I suppose the manner in which they lost yesterday will probably leave a bitter taste as of for the tournament legacy as a whole 
Yeah, I think of course after coming off the back of winning the Euros and and that high that they um experienced, they then wanted to straight away carry that into the World Cup, and I think they just they're a very very good team and they're very well drilled by Serena in their tactics and their technical um understanding um as a squad as a whole, and no matter who played, you've seen that throughout the tournament, other players came into it, and yeah, maybe weren't like known previously. Obviously, you've got the likes of Katie Zellum who played in their first tournament as well, so. You've got these players who are coming in, Laura Coombs on the back end of her international career, probably after it then being started again, getting called into the national team at 32. You've got you've got an, a whole array of different players, inexperienced, experienced. But I think as a whole, collectively, every player was, was so determined to succeed. And ultimately, yes, there is that pressure to it because you've come off the back of winning the Euros. But I think they should be so proud of what they've achieved as a whole, as a nation, because yes, no one expected them to probably get as far as they did when the injuries happened pre, pre-tournament, pre when the injury to Kira Walsh happened, when Lauren James got sent off. I think the expectation went down and down for those for that team externally to win the World Cup or to get to the World Cup final. But internally for themselves and as a team, they believed fully that they could do it. And they believed, and I think it showed in how upset the players were um, coming off the back of it. Because ultimately yes, they're proud of what they've achieved. And when they step back and maybe in a week's time and they, they step away from it all and the realisation of what they've actually done for themselves, the nation and the Lionesses, as they call themselves, it's incredible. But in that moment, they were dejected and they were absolutely distraught with the situation. And I think they, they're they professional footballers. They want to be winners. They want to win everything in their sights. And when you're playing at the top level, that's all you have ambitions for. And so then it is, in a sense... Yes, it's you've lost the game, but as a whole, when you step back and you look at the bigger picture, what they've done for women's sport in this country has been absolutely incredible over the last two years at minimum, but obviously beyond that from what they've created. Mm. Anthony, there were there were players on the England team who probably just didn't hit the heights that would be expected of them. They didn't perform as they would like, and that, that happens at every major final. Not everyone has a 9 out of 10 performance but like so Lucy Bronze, Ella Toon, who were so good, you know, in the semi-final, you know, they, you know, there was errors, you know, they they just didn't kind of impose themselves on the game in the way that they should have. And there'll be a lot of what ifs for Serena Wiegmann, I imagine, look when she looks back on the tape. Well, I mean, the goal, the divisive moment, the decisive moment of the game came from Lucy Bronze uh, just charging out and, and losing the ball in the middle of the park, and, and that was clinically brilliantly punished by Spain. And, and that was, um, you know, obviously the most important moment in the game, but it was a microcosm as well of that match because uh, Spain just just got it right. They absolutely got it right. They exposed England in the wide areas. They always seem to have over overloads. Um, I thought Paruelo up front. You know, the decision to start her was, I mean, you know, it was such a luxury to have as well as to have her up your sleeve. And, and that was the game he decided to start her. And, and she was as Megan good. said on Friday, though, I don't think she had 90 minutes in her. She looked absolutely gassed after about 75 yeah. minutes. Like 400 yeah, yeah. meter runner who couldn't run anymore yeah. after about 75 yeah. minutes. But, you know, she she did a brilliant job for them. I mean, she's such a such a talent as well. But, but she stretched England. Like she, she didn't allow, she made them play deep. And that, open up space in the middle of the park and, and look at the players, look at the technical ability that Spain have around there. Like I, I thought Bon Matty was absolutely brilliant, absolutely outstanding. I mean, we all, there's no great surprise there, but uh, she really was a joy to watch yesterday because even in the last sort of, it was 13 minutes of injury time and you think, oh, you know, here we go. They just missed the penalty. 
you know, which would have got them over the line with a close off. So you think there might be some jitters here, a chance for England to have a crack. And I expected England to be banging on the door for most of that stoppage time. It, it, it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And within that, Bon Matty is nobody's hoofing the ball 60 yards up the pitch, Nike. They're playing out the triangles. Mm. They, they don't know any other way to play. Um, right till the end, they control that match. Right to the end, up until I would say the last 60 seconds when England has a long throw in and I think they won a corner off it, which the keeper cleanly caught uh, Catacol, who didn't even make her international senior debut until the last 16 of this tournament, uh, which again is sort of in keeping of uh, the dysfunctional way they've, they've gone and won this. But uh, they, they just got it spot on. Everybody in their team played well. Uh, a few big players for England didn't, uh, but ultimately, I think they were just well beaten. They were beaten by a team that had technically better players in every compartment of the pitch. Yeah. Um, and a word then, of course, Megan, for the match winner, uh, Olga Carmona, what what a fantastic goal for left fullback to come up. Um, just the coolness, the precision of the finish. It was as good a finish as you'll see win any World Cup final match. And then after the final, she learns that on Friday, her father passed away after a long illness and her family decided... You know, not to tell her this on the eve of the biggest event of her life, which is, I think, understandable. But Jesus, the mix of emotions, it, it's hard to even fathom it, isn't it? Yeah, I think, wow, what an incredible occasion. I think when you talk about everything happens for a reason, I fully believe that. And people say destiny is like written well before the final. And I mean, to win a World Cup is amazing. And obviously to do it and then find out your your father's passed away but to be the goal scorer and the person who's who's won them the game ultimately with the great finish is like you just stand there and you think wow like it clearly was meant to be and it's obviously devastating in one sense because her father's passed away and in another she's overjoyed with excitement because they've just won their first world well their world cup and yeah um it's it's a, a bag of emotions and i'm sure um the poor girl will be all over the place in terms of having to try and deal with that now. But ultimately, the bigger picture is that her family kept that from her because her father would have all ultimately probably said, no, don't tell her. I want, I want her to, you know, knowing that he was ill. They, I, I presume that they would have said, no, keep it away from her. Allow her to, you know, play in the World Cup final and enjoy the moment for what it was. And I have no doubt that he'll be up above watching down and, and had a big part to play in that. And, yeah, I mean, she's she's a she's been a great player for for Spain all tournament. I think she scored the winner as well against Sweden from the in that madness of the last ten minutes of a game as well. So she comes up in big moments when called upon. And as a fullback, you're not really known for your goal scoring uh, abilities, but her left foot is absolutely quality. And uh, Spain are very very lucky to have her in their side, let alone be captain. Yeah. Anthony, we said on, I think it was you who said on, on Friday, you know, for this to be a good game, we need Spain to score first. And I think that that followed through. There's one prediction you got right, Anthony. Um, but the England really could have taken the lead early on. Lauren Hemp had a couple of chances and, you know, hit the bar with, with a cracking shot. And it, it did seem Spain took a few minutes kind of to warm up to get into their rhythm. And if England were going to strike those first 10 minutes was when they probably needed to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's there's been two tournament games under Serena Wigman's uh, tenure uh, England management reign where they've had less possession than their opponents Spain in the Euros quarterfinals last year and yesterday uh, so they're, they're not used to coming off second best in terms of having the ball and, and dictating the play and I, I think they just struggled to come to terms with that like as, the first 10-15 minutes was when they looked brightest 
and most likely to, to pinch a goal. But the longer the game went on, uh, Spain just dominated. I, I, you know, Viva made changes at halftime. Um, she did tweak the shape. Uh, she had Lauren James to bring on, but nothing really seemed to work. You know, it's just they just couldn't get a real grip of the, grip of the match. And well, I, I just think Spain, like, and this is one of the things about this World Cup, actually. You know, when you look at the USA and Germany in particular, um, when they were winning, you know, dominating and winning major tournaments, it, they seemed to be physically further down the road than all the other teams. So they were bigger and stronger and faster. And that gap has been bridged generally. I mean, we see it, uh, in, you know, in the smaller nations and how well they've uh, all done really, uh, pretty much without exception and, and to varying degrees. But like you would say that, that there's certainly... I mean, the biggest defeat in the tournament was was it England beating Spain? Was that was that the biggest six? England uh, China, or sorry, England beating China, um, and then Japan beating Spain. Mm. But like you know, China and clearly Spain, they're two very good sides. You can just put that down to bad days at the office. It happens. But in terms of like the smaller countries, there was no annihilations or anything like that. They all looked far better organized and fitter and physically better conditioned to deal with it. So I think it's it's a positive thing and it's a good thing that Spain have won this by being technically uh, the best team. And mm. that's now the, the next step for other countries, all countries, you know, whether you're England or Ireland or everyone, that, that's marrying, like we can all see, you know, for example, Ireland, we're very organized and we're fit and we have all that. And now it's like, can we raise the technical levels and try to live with these teams and keep the ball? Because, you know, when you play a team like Spain, you, you, you got it. When you get the ball, you really have to try and keep a hold of it as best as you can. Because you, you seen with England yesterday, they, they'd lose it and they wouldn't see it again for five or six minutes, which is a long time to live without the football in any game. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, they're just they're, they're such a such a great side to watch. Yeah, that was actually it's interesting you bring it up because that was going to be my next question for Megan was that this is an interesting development for for women's football that um I think when you look at the dominant team of the last you know, 15 years, I suppose, you're looking at the USA, they were, as Andrew said, would be a very well-drilled drilled team, very powerful team, technically good, but more, you know, more accustomed to not necessarily keeping the ball, kind of trying to get up the field and score kind of quickly. Um, Germany as well would have been what you would, I suppose, describe as a dynamic team. I suppose Japan winning the uh, the World Cup a few, a few goals, uh, tournaments ago were probably more akin to this Spanish team, but Spain are taking it up a notch. And I, I think... Would you think it shows the development of world women's football as as a whole, how Europe has kind of become the centre of it now, um, prof fully professional leagues um, and clubs with a very clear identity of how they want to play, which is also obviously being shown through the federations. It just it seems to me like we've we've come to a new version of women's football where, you know, it's no longer down to, you know, kind of just being the fastest or the strongest or the quickest. It's now, it has become as technical a game as the men's game ever was. Yeah, I think it's so important to to point that out, to see that the development of women's football in general is not, like you said, it's gone from, okay, you're the most physical, most fit team. And, and a lot of the years ago, that was beating teams and by a lot of goals as well, because teams would die off. Um and then you're obviously more exposed. And I think the more technical teams are becoming now and, and it shows a development from a younger age as well, all the way up, um, that that progress is now, you know, making teams better. Tactically, they're more aware. Technically, they're better players. And I think tactically especially, 
I mean, Serena Beekman has got herself to four major tournament finals and it's not by the look of the draw. Like, she's a very, very good manager. She knows her teams inside out in terms of the technical aspects, how good they are, where their strengths and weaknesses are, um, how they can, you know, get at teams and, and take advantage of, of, of other opponents. And I think that side of it is something that we probably haven't seen so far or a lot within the women's game. And I think it's so important to, like, study your opponent and see how can you take advantage of those areas and technically and tactically for the last number of years with England and obviously with Holland before the the Netherlands Serena has proved how good she is as a manager and it's also so good to see because now the younger generations looking at this Lionesses team for instance and looking at Spain are thinking okay well technically I need to improve because how do I now stay a part of that 1% that make it as a professional athlete? How do I then get myself into the England national team and how do I continue to progress myself? And technically, if you get your advantages early on, it's going to help massively. Um, and I think that's proved in in seeing the two teams in the final are probably the most technical within the tournament minus Japan. Mm. Yeah, it throws up a lot of interesting questions for the future of the game, really, Anthony, that, um, you know, the USA were, were nowhere close this time around, really, and it's an aging team. They still got a thriving league, but it's interesting to look at kind of how players develop in the States. Obviously, the, the college the college structure has always been kind of key to it. But, you know, before they hit the age of 18 or 19 and go to college, they have to play underage. And it was Dave Hannigan had some startling figures in the Irish Times last week where um, there's uh, Julie Foody, who won two World Cups. Uh, herself as a player she's a kid playing at a relatively high level underage and she reckons it's costing thirty thousand dollars a year for her family for her daughter to play football and this is not unusual now she's at a very high level so there's air travel involved and expenses but it seems you cannot play underage soccer in the u.s unless you come from a wealthy family or you get a a scholarship to a, a school or whatever that seems to me that it's a bit simplistic to say that the trend's going one way but that 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 just seems to be contrary to how football uh, develops in every other part of the world. Yes, you need to have you need to have structures. There, there needs to be an investment, and the FAI know that there needs to be more investment in men's and women's soccer in this country. But playing underage football is kind of something that's taken for granted as something people can do, and it seems to be that the world's leading light in women's soccer. That's not the case, and it seems there could be a reckoning coming down the road for the most successful team in the world. Well, yeah, I think I mean. There has to be, you know, if that's the case. I mean, the game itself is, you know, it's not the most popular sport in the world for nothing. It's it's accessible. Everybody can play it. Um, and I mean, look, in Ireland, there's costs involved. If you have a young family and you want them to play, there's there's membership costs and insurance and and buying gear, or boots, and travel and all the rest. But nothing like those figures that, that you uh, just mentioned there, Mikey, or reference there. Um, and of course, that's an issue for them because. I mean, it's pretty simple, you know, the more players playing the game, uh, the better chance you have of developing a bigger pool of talent and, uh, you know, feeding into underage uh, structures and competition and everything that goes with that. So there's something gone badly wrong there, you know, and, and particularly in the States where they, they, they're building off like those three World Cup wins in a row. Th- those players that have been part of that and central that, they're absolute ginormous stars uh, in, in the country. Um, and so to kind of shut, you know, rather than fully capitalize on that by having every girl in in America wanting to be the next Carly Lloyd or Megan Rapinoe or, or whoever it may be, 
for anybody, for any of those kids to be denied that chance uh, because of financial uh, restrictions is, I mean, something's clearly very wrong with that sort of structure. And I do appreciate that that's probably, as you say, like that's at the higher levels. It's probably not, it's not like they can't go out and play with their local club or whatever, but it's, it's still an issue for them. Um, and I guess a lesson for every other country now, because I know that from Australia to Ireland to Spain, England, like every nation now will be really trying to get bounce off this World Cup from the grassroots up. Um, interest levels have never been higher. Uh, participation levels have been, never been higher. So you really want to keep nurturing that and, and making it grow and flourish. And um, you know, this is sort of anti that very idea, which is <laughs> strange. It is. Um, Megan, then I suppose that bring to bring it back to Ireland. You know, the 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 Airtricity Women's Premier Division returned at the weekend. Uh, you would hope, I suppose, that as Anthony says, you, you do get that bump in terms of participation, in terms of bums on seats, but you know. The FAI, we can't in Ireland look at it and say we've got an ideal situation. There's, there's, there's a long, like there's a there's a journey to to travel here to get Ireland to be consistently at the top table. And you know, it's the same problem as we have for the men's game. It's like how much can you rely on our neighbours in Britain to develop and to develop our players and also to keep them at top level competition. It's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Can can you see the women's Premier Division being kind of the cornerstone of the Irish national team in the future, or is it is it just too far behind the major European leagues at this stage? I think as it stands, no, definitely not. Um, a lot more investment definitely has to go into the women's setup, and not from a first team point of view, from the structures below. Like we talk about the next generation of footballers watching onto this World Cup and want to be footballers, like they need to have those pathways accessible for them and have those opportunities available for them whenever they want it. Um, they shouldn't have to play with teams in order to get the best from themselves or to develop themselves better. Like There need to be better structures put in place for those underage young girls to be able to participate. One, if they want to do extra sessions, make it feasible. If they need to have um, group sessions within the national setup in terms of training camps and stuff, expose them more to like, I know that there's been a lot done and a lot of funding put in for the, from the FAI in that aspect. And it has been brilliant to see the development of the ETP, so the Emerging Talent Programmes, and, and more access like that. So Gainer Cup tournaments, exposing them to major, like not major tournaments, but for them as kids, it's major tournament. You're going down, down the country and you're playing against the top the top, um, the top, top areas within Ireland. So more maybe in, in that aspect needs to be done, definitely. But from a senior point of view, it's unfortunate, but and it's sad because there's so much talent within Ireland and so much players are being overlooked because they're not playing at a professional level and they're not exposed to the biggest games and the highest games. And so then when they come up at an international level, it's a massive step up for them. And in order for players to feel like they can make the national team, they, they think that they need to go abroad. And, and that's really sad ultimately because we have such a big pool of, of talent within Ireland that is not being seen and, and not being given the same opportunities that they have in England. And I think we're a very long way off it, but we are getting there. And I think the exposure that the girls have done now in going to the World Cup and, and, and being successful over there and previous to that tournament in getting us to the World Cup as essentially that needs to now be the catalyst for this. That needs to, like Anthony said, that needs to be the starting point where now nations are looking on going, right, okay, how can we push on? How can we continue to bounce off the back of this World Cup 
and continue to push our women's national team and our underage setups because it's not about the girls who have been at that World Cup and how, of course, it's how great it has been for them as individuals and collectively as a team. But ultimately, the reason why it's been so, so successful and why the girls are so happy is because what we've done now for the next generation is what's most important. And now that we've done our part, it's okay, okay, now now the funding needs to be put in place and now those paths need to be put in place and and made accessible for every every child whether you can like afford a lot of money or you or your parents are struggling there needs to be equal opportunity and I think that's also so important because I feel like a lot of the time like you're talking about in America about the finances and how important that has been in terms of if girls want to go further in their career they need to you know have not a rich family but family who are more well off than others and it should never be like that. Football should be an opportunity where you're exercising for one and you're outside and your development is so important as a kid. So just get get kids to be able to play sport, whether it's soccer or not. Like allow girls the opportunity to play sport. Um, yeah, I can't I can't stress it enough. Like it shouldn't come down to to fees and money and okay, I can't do it because my family can't afford it. Like, it should never be like that. I mean, I was fortunate as a kid where I played multiple sports and ultimately I had to choose one because mum and dad said to me, Meg, like, the cost of everything is just too expensive for us. And it should never be a case where your family are struggling because they don't want to let you down. Like, they want to mm. see you do be happy. So money shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, it's it's... it's... It's a bizarre situation and it's a big topic of conversation, which we got into before the World Cup and we will get into again. But I know we're nearly out of time. So just finally, I want to ask you both for your, you know, what was your favourite moment of the tournament? Looking back on it, Anthony, start with you. Uh, probably Spain's performance yesterday, just, just to see how well, they, you know, to, when you see a team like that click on the biggest stage when it matters most, um, it's just a great sort of thrill in seeing that. Um, and then just from a personal point of view, the, the first Ireland's first game in Sydney, uh, when the teams came out, actually just, just that moment and, and that realisation that they were there and uh, the enormity of it and the atmosphere and everything was was really, really special. And, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, we bounce straight into the Nations League now, don't we, the Northern Ireland at the Aviva Stadium in September. Um, and I bet, you know, there's no doubt that those players have a taste of that stage and they'll be desperate to get back and uh, hopefully in a couple of years in Switzerland, they will. All credit to Spain, but when I asked you for your moment, you said Spain, yes, I was like, surely he's going to say the Australia match that he was at in Sydney. That would be weird. Yeah. But he did. He got there in the end. <laughs> Megan, how about yourself? Yeah, probably one or two myself. And that's probably um, obviously Ireland walking out first ever game at a World Cup and just seeing the girls and then Arona being ringing around the stadium and you could hear the echo of the fans. I think from speaking to the girls as well, they said that the game against Canada, because it was a, a smaller crowd and obviously a lot more Irish were there, they heard like the Ronavine ringing around the stadium and it gave them all goosebumps as naturally it would do. But you could hear it coming through the television. And that moment, I think, will live long in, in the memory of the girls and of the whole nation. And I think from a whole, from a World Cup, um, I, I loved watching... Colombia against Germany I just thought mm -hmm. it was such a, a great spectacle for the underdog um, to come out on top and obviously in the manner in which they've done it so late on as well it's um, yeah I think that that itself was obviously a, a big feat by Colombia playing and beating the Germany the Germany nation that or the German team that we would all consider to be probably one of the best in the world um, uh, yeah it was a it was a great a great match yeah 
I'm going to go for two niche ones. Uh, and they're both goalkeepers, actually. First was the Haiti goalkeeper's performance against England. She was brilliant. She's only five foot four. Curly Theus, I think is her name. She was phenomenal. It was just the most entertaining thing to watch. She was so confident. And the second one was Mary Earps yesterday telling the world to F off after she saved the penalty. It was just <laughs> magnificent. It was just the most natural reaction. It was. I, I like Mary Earps a lot. She's very fun to watch. She seems to... Uh, She's very expressive. She said she doesn't hide what she's thinking or feeling at any point. And that was just brilliant that she just told, she just screamed it at the world, it seemed, not at anybody in particular. Probably more to Spanish players, but that was fantastic. That put a smile on my face. So there are my two moments. Um, so thank you to Anthony and to Megan and to everybody, uh, particularly Raf, who's on holiday, who contributed to the um, the World Cup podcast over the last month. Um, we've had great fun doing it. This is the final one, obviously, but... Um, We'll obviously be back, keeping an eye on the Ireland Ireland's Nations League campaign, where hopefully Megan will be involved before too long. Fingers crossed. And obviously we'll follow. Um, we'll have there's an FEI board meeting next week that could have uh, major ramifications, but um, we'll catch up on that after it occurs. So thank you, Anthony, and thank you, Megan, and we'll be back again soon. Good luck. Supporter and a half likes, shares, comments, and tweets. Cadbury sponsors RTE Soccer Women's World Cup podcast.